Hello and welcome to the Tech Dispute Network's Need to Know Basis podcast series, which offers a convenient way of getting on top of the most important new developments and cases involving technology via short podcasts of approximately 15 minutes, presented by the leading experts in the field. These podcasts offer succinct summaries of the key points to note on the topics we all need to know about, in a way that takes up as little of your time as possible. This podcast series is brought to you by the Tech Disputes Network, which is a London-based forum for those engaged with contentious technology issues. My name is Sam, and I am one of the founders of the TDN, which I encourage you to join by registering at disputes.tech to receive information about our upcoming events and initiatives, which are all free of charge. Today, we're joined by Matt McGee, a barrister at 20 Essex, to discuss payment fraud. Payment fraud has become a regular feature in the news, and regrettably the current circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic have only increased the prevalence of this fraud. The perpetrators have become both ever more brazen and ever more sophisticated in their attempts to trick their victims into paying sometimes very large sums of money to an account that they, the fraudster, control. Although it is possible to track down the fraudster, it's not always feasible, so victims may often look to see whether they can blame the intended payee for the fraud instead. Thank you to the Tech Disputes Network for inviting me to speak in this podcast on payment fraud and the party's blame game. Thanks also to you, the listener, for tuning in. The alternative title to this podcast could have been Help, My Counterparty Has Been Hacked. I'm going to be discussing the increasingly common case where one party has been tricked into paying a cyber fraudster instead of their counterparty with both that first party and the counterparty, then pointing the finger of blame at one another, saying that the other is responsible for the fraud and should therefore pay the bill at the end of the day. At the risk of doing myself out of a podcast and making me switch off now, my conclusion in short is that it's going to be an unusual case where it is of any legal relevance which party was responsible for the fraud itself. That said, there are situations where responsibility may be important, with that responsibility then determining which of the two counterparties bears the loss consequent on the fraud. So I do hope that you'll remain tuned in as I spend the next 10 minutes or so discussing the principles arising out of two recent cases in the High Court in London. I'll conclude by setting out the possible ways in which, in the right case, responsibility for the cyber fraud taking place will shift the loss from that fraud from one party to the other. The first case that I'll be referring to is Sell Your Car With Us Limited and Serene. This was a 2019 decision of Insolvency and Companies Court Judge Burton. The judge there was considering, and in that case refused, an application for an injunction to restrain a winding up petition being presented by Mr Serene. The second case I will then turn to is Rix Museum Twent and Simon C. Dickinson Limited. This was a decision of earlier this year, 2020, uh, made by His Honour Judge Pellin QC. Uh, the judge there refused the claimant's application for permission to make certain amendments to his particulars of claim. Now, at the outset, I do need to say that neither case is a wide ranging authority that lays to bed all of the possible issues that may arise. Um, and each case is very much dependent on its facts. However, in my view, both cases apply the existing legal principles to the sort of cyber fraud that we're talking about today, and both cases reach consistent answers. 
Uh, I would therefore suggest that these cases demonstrate the course that would likely be taken in a future case if uh, or when, as is all but inevitable, parties seek to litigate similar points again. Before turning to the detail of those cases, though, I just want to summarise the sort of fraud that we are dealing with here, though I imagine that it will be very familiar to uh, tech dispute network practitioners, whether from their own experience or from reports in newspapers and other media. Generally, these cases will concern an existing contract, perhaps for goods or services. One party under the contract, party A, is required to pay their counterparty, party B. However, before A makes the required payment to B, a fraudster becomes involved. Now, sometimes the fraudster has compromised B's email server and causes emails to be sent from B's genuine email address to A. In other cases, the fraudster simply uses an email address that looks confusingly similar to B's genuine email address and A doesn't notice the difference. There are also cases in the middle uh, known as spoofing, which is a relatively low-tech process which causes A's email system to display B's genuine email uh, address in place of the different email address that the fraudster has actually sent the email, the fraudulent email from. Now, in all of these cases, A and B will often end up arguing between themselves about who is responsible for enabling the fraudster to get access to their transaction. Parties will often want to uh, run off and engage in wide-ranging and invariably expensive forensic exercises where computer experts will examine both parties' computer systems in an effort to determine which, if either, was hacked and how the fraudster came to send the fraudulent email instructions. This podcast is intended to question whether that exercise is of any legal relevance at all. Um, with that slightly grandiose claim, I will now look at the two cases that I mentioned earlier. First, sell your car with us and Serene. This was a dispute between a car sales company and the owner of a car. Under the party's agreement, the company sold the car to a third party and was then obliged to pay over the sale proceeds to the car's now former owner. The owner had provided his bank details by email to the car dealership company and had directed that company to make payment to the account. It was at this point that the fraudster became involved. The fraudster in Sell Your Car With Us then sent the car dealer company an email from a confusingly similar address to that which was the genuine address of the car's former owner. There was then a chain of correspondence which ended in the company paying the fraudster instead of the car's owner. When the fraud was then discovered, the company somewhat understandably refused to pay the sum, considering that it had already uh, paid uh, at the direction of what it thought was its customer. For our purposes today, the company raised two possible counterclaims which it claimed to have available to it and which it said shifted responsibility for this fraud away from the company and onto the owner of the car. First, the company alleged that it was an implied term of the party's contract 
that the owner of the car would take reasonable care over the security of his email communications. Second, the company alleged that the owner had, by agreeing to communicate by email in the first place, implicitly represented that he, the owner, had reasonable control over the security of his email communications. In the first case, the company said that the implied term was breached, and the alternative argument, uh, based on representation, was that that was in fact a negligent misrepresentation under Section 2.1 of the Misrepresentation Act 1967, and in either case, the company asserted that it was entitled to claim damages from the owner, which would be equal to, and therefore extinguish, the debt that that owner was claiming. The debt being, of course, the underlying sale proceeds of the car that had been fraudulently uh, sent mistakenly uh, in line with the fraudster's instructions. Now, the question for the judge in this case was whether either of these counterclaims were genuine or serious. That was the test that the judge uh, had to consider in that particular instance, and the judge commented that this was a low threshold that the company had to meet. Turning to the first of the two counterclaims then, the starting point was whether the company had a real prospect of passing the threshold to imply a term into the contract. Now, following the very well-known 2016 Supreme Court decision in M&S and BMP Paribas, the implied term must be necessary to give business efficacy to the contract. It must be so obvious that it goes without saying and be capable of clear expression. The judge in this case, sell your car, also referred to the 2017 decision of the Privy Council in Ali and Petroleum Company of Trinidad and Tobago, which confirmed that it's irrelevant that the proposed implied term would have improved the contract or that it was fair or reasonable. Ultimately, the judge dismissed the company's argument, finding that the proposed implied term simply could not fit into the contract. The reason being that the alleged term was simply not required to give the contract business efficacy. The judge also suggested that the alleged obligation to take reasonable care of email communications and security was insufficiently clear to be implied without the need for further particularization. As to the second counterclaim that the company raised, this based on the misrepresentation, the company was again reliant on implication, this time implying an extra contractual representation by the owner to the company, um, namely about the care and security that, uh, and control that the owner had uh, taken over their email account. Now, applying basic contractual principles, the alleged representation must have been a representation of fact made by the owner, the owner must have known that representation to be false, and the company must have relied on the representation when entering into the contract. The judge in Sell Your Car dismissed the argument at each of these levels. The judge held that the representation simply could not be implied. The only representation in providing an email address was that this was the address at which the owner of the car could be contacted. There was no wider representation than that. Second, that representation was no more than a statement of intent on the part of 
the owner, even if the company was correct and that you could imply the representation they sought, it was merely a representation by the owner that they would seek to take care of their email communications, not uh, any sort of wider guarantee that a sufficient degree of care would be taken. Third and finally, uh, the judge found that there was no evidence whatsoever that the company had relied on the alleged implied representation when entering into the contract. Overall, therefore, the judge held that neither of the company's proposed counterclaims had any prospect of success. They failed even to meet the low threshold of being serious or genuine or substantial dispute. Turning then to the second of the two cases I'm going to be addressing, uh, Rick's Museum Twent and Simon C. Dickinson Limited. This is a claim which I believe is still ongoing at time of recording between an art museum and an art dealer. The museum had agreed to buy a particular painting from the dealer um, and it was this transaction that the fraudster inveigled their way into. The fraudster became aware of the party's contract and sent emails to the museum, which appeared to be from the art dealer's address. However, this was a case of spoofing where the emails did not actually arrive from that uh, genuine address of the art dealer, but instead from a third party address with that third party having set up the email account in such a way that the museum wouldn't immediately have noticed the difference. In any event, the museum followed the instructions that they received by email from, as it later transpired, the fraudster. And there was then a dispute between the parties as to whether, in doing so, the museum had discharged its obligations under the purchase contract. That's the background to the wider case, which, as I say, is, I believe, still ongoing. However, the judgment that we're concerned with from earlier this year was a judgment on an application by the museum for permission to add new allegations of breach to the particulars of claim. For present purposes, there are three formulations of the museum's claim that it wished to add to these proceedings and that we need to consider in the context of this podcast. First, the museum sought to include a claim that the dealer had impliedly warranted or owed an implied contractual duty uh, to ensure that the dealer's email systems were secure. However, the judgment of His Honour Judge Pelling QC recalls that this plea was withdrawn during the hearing, apparently in the face of quite strong opposition from the judge. The view that the judge records as having been um, put to counsel at the hearing was that there was simply no prospect of implying the term into the contract. As in Sell Your Car, which we've just looked at, the reason for the judge's view was that the proposed implied term was simply not necessary to give business efficacy to the party's contract. Again, very much stressing that the test is one of necessity and it is a high bar to pass. The second counterclaim the museum sought to bring in was to allege that an agent of the dealer had received the spoof emails from the fraudster, but had failed to then inform the museum that those emails were in fact false. It was alleged that this gave rise to an implied representation by the dealer that the emails were in fact genuine. 
again, there is a, a certain similarity between this way of putting the case and the one that we've just considered in sell your car with the implied misrepresentation. In the case of uh, Rick's Museum, the judge held that it was fatal to this implied representation and the claim based on it, that there was no suggestion in the museum's amended case that the dealer's agent knew or ought to have known that the email that she received was not a genuine email sent by the dealer. For this reason, the judge held that the museum's proposed case on representation was simply unarguable and again refused permission to amend. The third and for our purposes final way in which the museum sought to bring a new claim was to allege a novel duty of care owed by the dealer in tort um, up to protect the museum from pure economic loss. That loss specifically being the loss of being required to pay the contract price twice or paying the fraudster and not discharging the obligation. In considering whether there might be this novel duty of care, the judge referred to a line of authorities ending with the 2018 Supreme Court decision in Playboy Club and BNL. The judge explained that this line of authorities established that if the museum sought to allege that the dealer owed a duty of care in tort to prevent pure economic loss, the burden was then on the museum to demonstrate, uh, and I quote, that there really has been a voluntary assumption of responsibility, or a voluntary assumption of risk, sorry. And that risk is of the loss caused uh, to the uh, museum. In the absence of a real voluntary assumption of risk by the dealer, there, a, a crucial element of the suggested novel tort is simply not present and the claim therefore must fail. The judge did not consider that there was any basis to uh, I, uh, establish that voluntary assumption on the facts before him. So looking at those two cases then, we see that it's not terribly uh, bright news for parties who are seeking to ascribe responsibility and to pass it on to their counterclaim in this way. However, the question which I'm now going to um, pose as I draw to a conclusion is whether these two cases leave any room for a party to shift the loss in a case of fraud such as this to their counterparty. As I suggested at the outset, uh, my view is that there is very little room available, but that it is certainly not impossible. Um, let's just take stock of what options are available to a party who believes that its counterparty's computer systems may have been compromised by a fraudster, for example. The first question should be whether liability can be imposed as a matter of contract. Ideally, if you're the one bringing the claim, you will be able to identify something express in the terms of the contract that you can rely on. This may be a term which addresses cybersecurity or fraud specifically, but it may be a more general provision. It might be worth, for example, carefully scrutinizing terms relating to confidentiality and security of information, for example. The question to be asked is whether the counterparty may have been said to have breached this express term if 
for example, they had some substandard cybersecurity measures in place, which then enabled the fraud to take place. That, as I say, is the ideal situation. Um, unfortunately, I think it is certainly unusual that there are express terms such as that which can be used. Generally, one therefore has to fall back to the option of seeking to imply the term dealing with this particular matter. As we saw, this happened in both Sell Your Car and Rick's Museum. Unfortunately, uh, in both cases, that failed. Whether you can imply a term or not does hinge on passing that necessity test. Um, it will um, be an uphill struggle, but it will also be inevitably highly fact specific. So in the correct case, it is certainly one that is worth exploring. That's the contractual way of bringing the claim. But what if that's not available? What then are the prospects of a claim in tort? Now, this brings us to Rick's Museum again and the attempt to construct a novel duty of care to prevent one's counterparty from suffering pure economic loss through this sort of fraud. As the judge indicated in that case, if you wish to plead a novel duty of care such as this, you do need to establish it from first principles in any given case. In particular, the onus will be on the claimant or the party alleging the duty of care to prove that their counterparty voluntarily assumed responsibility towards it, the first party, and that the first party who is alleging this novel duty in fact relied on that voluntary assumption of responsibility. So there will have to be uh, factual matters to, that you need to plead to establish both the voluntary assumption of responsibility and the subsequent reliance. Absent a compelling case on both of those elements, the claim is, I'm afraid, all but doomed to fail. The other suggestion, which was made in both Sell Your Car and Rick's Museum, was that there was some sort of implied representation made by the parties whose computer systems were said to be compromised. However, as we saw in both of those cases, to succeed in that argument, it is necessary to establish a clear representation of fact made by the counterparty, which must have been false to the knowledge of that counterparty and then relied on by you, the first party, in entering into the contract. In Sell Your Car, all of those elements were missing. In Rick's museum, the judge disposed of the matter purely on the basis that uh, the knowledge element was missing, but it might equally be anticipated that the museum in that case would have encountered difficulties in respect of the other elements had the matter continued any further. So it does look difficult to establish a prima facie case on liability. And I will also add to that, that if a prima facie case can be established, the party seeking to rely on it will then also have to grapple with potentially difficult issues concerning both causation and remoteness. Uh, both of those are elements that a party would be well advised to give serious consideration to before going too far down the line in bringing these sorts of claims. Bring matters to a close then. 
by way of conclusion, overall, there are limited avenues by which one party can seek to make their counterparty liable for a fraud due to that counterparty being allegedly responsible for facilitating the fraud in some indirect way, for example, by having lax cybersecurity. Taking a step back, and as a matter of principle, this is not a terribly surprising result. The courts, particularly in the two cases that I've been referring to, have shown an understandable reluctance to make one party responsible to their counterparty to maintain a standards of cybersecurity themselves so as to protect their counterparty from the risk of harm. Now, despite that being a difficult proposition to establish to start with, uh, that certainly not stopped parties in these reported cases, or I should also add in other cases that I'm aware of, from trying to establish such duty. Uh, I suspect that more attempts will probably be made in the future by other litigating parties, and I can only hope that this podcast has been helpful in the event that you find yourself needing to deal with one of those situations from either side of the fence. Uh, once again, thank you very much to the Tech Disputes Network and of course to you for listening.